Welcome back to the Jacob Wool Show. Here we are, Thursday, December 8th. Back with the show. A lot to discuss, a lot of news. Uh, of course, breaking in the last 24 hours, Roger Stone and Laura Loomer both restored on Twitter. As of the recording of this show, as of beginning the show at least, uh, my account still not back at Jacob A. Wool uh, on Twitter, still suspended. Uh, but accounts seem to be coming back a very promising sign. Of course, very good news for Roger and Laura and for the whole country. Uh, unrelated to them, of course, not comparable in any way. But Richard Spencer uh, also brought back onto Twitter. And uh, Richard Spencer calling for me, calling for Jacob Wold to be brought back on Twitter in the name of free speech. Uh, I'll tell you what, I don't agree with Richard Spencer on much, if anything, but uh, it sure is nice to uh, have somebody calling for you to have your free speech restored. So I can't say that I, uh, I I oppose him on that. Very nice of him to tweet that out. So that's going on. It seems that Twitter is coming back. It seems that Republicans will once again have access to the public square. That is incredible news, of course. It's, it's great news for the country. So uh, that is just wonderful to see, and and hopefully my account is restored. Maybe even during this show, uh, I am, I am hopeful. We'll see what happens. Uh, cross your fingers, and and let's see what happens here. Uh, also uh, happening just this morning, Biden announcing in a tweet this morning that WNBA player Brittany Griner is on her way back from Russia. Of course, she was arrested in Russia. Uh, attempting to smuggle marijuana into the country. Uh, she was charged. She was convicted. Uh, not a frame job by all appearances. Of course, there would be the fear of that given the ongoing tensions between the two countries, but this apparently not any kind of a frame job or anything. She basically admitted that she did bring the marijuana into Russia. Uh, so that is uh, just uh, coming out in the last number of hours. Now, what is, of course, disturbing about this is that it didn't come for free. The United States released a Russian arms trafficker, Russian arms dealer Victor Boot in exchange for Brittany Griner. Victor Boot uh, was arrested a number of years ago, I think due to an FBI and ATF sting operation. Uh, he is uh, apparently... Uh, known to be engaged in arms dealing with all kinds of unsavory characters all over the world. Uh, the U.S. basically uh, exerting jurisdiction globally over that and arresting him. He has been in custody for quite some time. The Kremlin has wanted him back, and he is now back on his way to Russia. Will Chamberlain wrote on Twitter, uh, WNBA players are some of the most privileged people on the planet. They generate almost no revenue. Their salaries are subsidized by male players. And when they are jailed for committing crimes in foreign countries, it's enough for it's enough of a scandal to release a murderous arms dealer. That was out from Will Chamberlain this morning. Meanwhile, Biden left former U.S. Marine Paul Whelan uh, to rot in prison. Paul Whelan has been uh, arrested in Russia, I believe, as of 2018. So he was arrested there quite some time ago. He's a former Marine, ran some kind of a security company out of Michigan. It does appear that Paul Whelan is some kind of a spook. Uh, whether he is a CIA or he is NSA or he is DIA, I don't exactly know. 
What I can tell you is that Paul Whelan at the time of his arrest had an American passport, you know, a real American passport, as well as real passports from Canada, from Ireland, and from England at the time of his arrest. This is kind of uh, par for the course for what you would call a knock. A knock is a non-official cover uh, intelligence officer. These are people that go overseas and collect intelligence for our country and do not enjoy diplomatic immunity. So they are not going to a U.S. embassy under the auspices of being a uh, diplomat and then going around and spying. And as long as they can get away with it, keeping it up. And if they don't, they get expelled from the country. That is, is one kind of intelligence officer. That's the majority of intelligence officers. But there is another kind of intelligence officer known as a knock, non-official cover. These people have some of the hardest, loneliest, uh, just brutal and tough jobs on earth. They are um, among, you know, the, the most talented people in the intelligence business, truly. And they will go overseas as working for a security contractor or working for an oil company or working for a management consulting company like Deloitte. The, the, they have existed under a number of programs uh, within the CIA's bureaucracy, something known as the National Resources Division uh, that ran a lot of this for a long time. Of course, it, it would be illegal for me to say, if I knew that Paul Whelan was uh, an intelligence officer, for sure, if I had definitive information that that were the case, and I were to say it, then what would happen is that uh, members of the CIA police, yes, the CIA has their own police force that has arrest uh, jurisdiction, they would uh, come through, uh, CIA headquarters is, oh, I don't know, quarter mile away from my house. In fact, they even patrol through my neighborhood just because there's a lot of diplomats here and a lot of high level folks that live even within my neighborhood. So CIA police patrol my neighborhood, which frankly makes me feel good from the standpoint of, you know, it would be very dumb to commit a burglary in this neighborhood for that reason. But they would come and arrest me under the Intelligence Identities uh, Protection Act of 1982 the Intelligence Identities Protection Act of 1982. This made it illegal to unmask uh, U.S. intelligence personnel who are operating undercover. It is a crime to do so in the United States. Now, I'm not saying that I have any information that Paul Whelan is an intelligence officer. Uh, it just does seem to make sense that he is, in fact, an intelligence officer, given the passports, given his background in the military. We know that that you know, the intelligence agencies recruit a lot of former military people. They recruit a lot from the Marine Corps, interestingly, believe it or not. They recruit quite a lot from the Marine Corps. Um, and his, you know, security contractor business and all of that, it does seem likely that that is, in fact, uh, what he does, that he's a non-official cover operative. That means that he does not enjoy any kind of diplomatic immunity, did not have a diplomatic passport. His ostensible story is that he was in Russia for a wedding, uh, to attend a wedding. So all of that. Now, Brittany Greiner is uh, now on her way back or presumably maybe landing soon uh, here in the U.S. Biden released a photo op with the wife of Brittany Greiner. Brittany Greiner is a six foot eight. I think she's one of the rare female basketball players who can dunk the basketball. I think there's only been five WNBA players in history who can 
dunk a ball and they're all like six foot eight, six foot nine. It shows you the difference in neuromuscular efficiency between men and women. But that's not the only American left behind, Paul Whelan. Uh, there's another American citizen by the name of Mark Fogel. I think Mark Fogel uh, was a teacher. Uh, but Mark Fogel was entering Russia with uh, med- medically prescribed marijuana. It is not legal there. They do not recognize his prescription. He was sentenced to 14 years in prison. That was quite some time ago. I think 2010 or, or, or 11 or maybe 12. Uh, it, it's been a little while. Now, Mark Fogel is not even listed by the State Department as an American wrongfully detained overseas. He doesn't even enjoy that distinction. He doesn't, he doesn't get that amount of recognition. Uh, folks, you have to understand, uh, America's hyper-permissive drug culture, America's laissez-faire attitude towards using serious illegal narcotics and and marijuana is one especially given the strength of marijuana these days and the er statistics show that and and the the amount of psychosis it's causing in society show that but the, the world doesn't share that attitude towards drugs by and large if you are going to a place like russia or you're going to the middle east or frankly if you're going anywhere overseas you have got to recognize that as as an american you are potentially a bargaining chip. And so you don't even think about bringing any kind of drugs over there. I don't even bring, frankly, Benadryl with me when I travel overseas, which can be a pain in the uh, in the neck to try to get to sleep if I'm not able to track some of it down, depending on what time I arrive and the jet lag and all of that stuff. I remember traveling overseas a couple of years back and I First couple of days were fine, but on like day three, I slipped. I slipped into this horrible circadian rhythm cycle where I was sort of a, a, awake for eight hours and then asleep for four, awake for eight, asleep for four. I don't know how it happened, and I mean, when that eight hours was up, that I was awake, it was like I got hit with you know a tranquilizer dart. It was like boom, I was out. I mean, there's no way to stay conscious. It, it would just like stumble into bed or stumble onto the sofa. It was a strange thing that lasted for about another three days, and then I. I kind of normalized, but I don't even bring Benadryl with me. I mean, you you can't do this because if you are an American, um, you don't even mess around with that. Somebody writes here in the chat, um, yeah, don't fly to Japan with your Adderall prescription. You'll find yourself in a similar situation. Yeah, you don't know to what degree they're going to recognize your prescription or or anything like that. Um, and, And again... You know, if you're a Mexican national, if you're a, uh, you know, a a Nicaraguan national, if you are a Thai national, well, you know, on one hand, you may not enjoy the diplomatic uh, sort of, sort of, you know, the diplomatic sort of uh, weight of the country if, in fact, your home country wants to get you out. But on the other hand, the country that you are alleged to be an offender in, they also don't see you as as some kind of chip that they're going to use to get one of their citizens out or that they're going to use to shake down your home country for more foreign aid and all of that. So don't mess around with this stuff. And, and you know, one of the things that I have seen is that Travel. I think Instagram has made travel a lot more popular than than it was. Everybody wants to travel, and they think traveling is like a personality trait. To be frank with you, I I got my fill of traveling. 
I really did. I, I'm kind of over it. And I had to travel so much for work circa kind of mid 2017 through 2020. And I, I added up all the flights and it was just some obscene number of flights, some obscene number of miles. And it got to the point where I, I just had my fill. I was just kind of over it. But even when I did travel, I, I like to travel with a purpose, with a mission. I don't like to just travel to travel. Traveling to me seems like a, you know, sort of a, a, a an inconvenience. And if I have to do it, I, I'd like there to be a purpose. And frankly, all the interesting things happen traveling when you're there for a reason. You know, I mean, yeah, a guided tour can be interesting of a mu museum or something like that. There's no doubt about that. But what I'm saying is that far more interesting stories come out of being somebody, being somewhere with, with a mission and then something else happens that comes of it. And th that's where really the interesting things happen. Um, contract their ministry of health first. Many will get back to you within a day. Yeah, that's a good idea if you're going to be traveling. So I kind of got my fill of the traveling, but I'll tell you, people people take a much more flippant approach to traveling. You know, I, I've 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 met you know young women, for example, that tell me, oh, you know, I'm going to Argentina, and you say, well, okay, and then it just, well, I'm going to, I'm going here, I'm going there, and and the countries become progressively kind of more sketchy, and even in the absence of the the country being sketchy. Given the open borders that have not just been a problem in the U.S., but have, have become an issue around the world, going to France doesn't necessarily mean going to France any longer. You know, especially if you're traveling on a budget, as many young people are doing these days, you can find yourself in a, in a very strange situation in a country like France or in a country like Germany. Traveling to Sweden does not necessarily mean traveling to Sweden anymore. You can stumble into the wrong area, the wrong neighborhood, or just stumble into the wrong group of people and have a, a very horrible outcome. And, and some people will call this cynical and what have you. All I'm saying is that if you're going to be traveling, you need to be thinking like a professional. You need to be thinking long and hard about planning. Uh, before I travel anywhere, even within the United States, I hop onto Google Street View and I just start scouting locations, scouting where I'm going to be staying, scouting the path between A and B, scouting an alternative path between B and C should something happen. Um, I'm thinking about you know backup airports. I'm thinking about if something happens in that country, what's the quickest way to a neighboring country? I know where the consulate is located by heart. I know where the embassy is located by heart. And, you know, part of this is probably caution that you don't have to necessarily take. And I might have to take because of who I am to a greater degree. But it's something to consider. It, it really is. Um, you know, you, you, you have to think about all that. Uh, somebody says here in the chat that I was thinking the, earlier, the quality of Swedish and Norwegian deals is really going to decline. Yeah. You know, the, the, these countries that are that have enjoyed total homogeneity for their entire history. And people would make these documentaries about look at jails in Norway. They're basically like summer camps in the U.S. They're so nice. Look, everyone's so polite. They read Bibles. Look. Oh, look over here. They're playing shuffleboard. I'm sure you've all seen those documentaries at some point on YouTube or elsewhere. It's like, yeah, okay. 
let's give Norway the demographic makeup of parts of this country and we'll see what their jails look like. Spoiler alert, they're going to look just like the jails in Africa or in South America, Central America, because to a large extent in life, as we know, demographics are destiny. Now, talking a bit about that, of course, I have to get into this Herschel Walker situation here. What happened in Georgia? My God, we have to talk about this. I've really, I think, tried to provide a very nuanced view of, of what happened in the midterms. There were a number of subplots that were taking over that turned out to be true. There were a number of subplots that turned out to be not true. For example, I'll just give you one. There's a lot of talk about how the abortion decision, uh, the, the decision overturning Roe v. Wade by the Supreme Court, mobilized Gen Z in huge numbers all across the country, record turnout. And I kind of looked at that initial impression because, of course, when the data first comes out, you, you have to be careful about making too much of it because then other data comes out or people say, oh, oops, we miscounted this. So you have to take it with a grain of salt at first. But when that came out, I sort of thought to myself, well, I, I don't know, that, that doesn't quite add up to me. And... The reason it didn't add up to me is I talked about how the protests that were seen after this abortion decision were nowhere near the size of the protests that happened right after Ruth Bader Ginsburg died, which I was at in person in both cases. So I got to see with my own eyes. I'm not depending on media reports. They were nowhere near the size, nowhere near the level of passion. I was at both. Bullhorning people, of course. And they weren't even the size of the Kavanaugh, you know, anti-Kavanaugh protests or the anti-Gorsuch protests, nowhere close. Um, or the anti-Amy Coney Barrett protests, which were kind of right after Ruth Bader Ginsburg. And in fact, these protests were not even the size of the pro-abortion protests, which was essentially their main point. The Women's March protests that, that took place just after Trump was inaugurated into office. So based on that, I sort of said, well, hang on here. You're saying they were mobilized, and, and there was that TikTok sub-narrative, which certainly mobilized Gen Z voters in certain areas of the country, namely around university campuses and things like that. And I said, you know, I'm just not buying it. Well, it turns out that, for example, when it comes to that subplot, which I was skeptical about, more data comes out. It turns out that Gen Z turnout for the 2022 midterms was lower than Gen Z turnout for the 2018 midterms. So you talk about overall Gen Z turnout. And, and I shouldn't say Gen Z because people say, well, yeah, Gen Z, uh, they were younger then. Many were under 18, so duh. No, no, what I mean is 18 to 29 turnout. I want to clarify. Turnout of voters ages 18 to 29 was lower in 2018, or lower, rather, 2022 midterms than it was in 2018. So the, the Gen Z being like, you know, wiping everything out or the 1829s wiping everything out turned out not to necessarily be true. It was very applicable, very relevant in certain pockets of the country. It was re relevant in Michigan. It was relevant in other parts of the country. Uh, but it wasn't a, a big wave of 18 to 29 voters. So anyway, the, all of this is to say I've tried to be very, I hate to use the term, it's so overused these days, nuanced in my approach. I would just say very detail-oriented very diligent 
is what I would like to say more than nuanced. That word is just, oh my God, it's one of those words. It's so overused. I'm so tired of hearing the word nuanced, hearing it overused. Good afternoon, MJ. I see you joining us here in the chat. So what went on here with Herschel Walker in Georgia? What went on? What really happened? Herschel Walker, of course, if you haven't read the news, he lost the election to incumbent Senator Raphael Warnock down in Georgia. This means that in the midterms, the balance of power has now, in fact, shifted in favor of the Democrats. It is 51-49 without the vice president's vote. That makes it 52 if Kamala Harris has to step in to break a tie at some point. So it's a, it's a remarkable thing considering the state of the economy, the state of the country, the foreign policy failures, the fact that Biden has lurched the United States into this situation with Russia that nobody can seem to get out of, energy prices higher, although finally receding, oil now trading around, I think it was $75 a barrel today, WTI oil. That's down from over 100 So energy is coming down now, gas finally cheaper than it was a year ago today. Um, but nonetheless, a, a huge set of headwinds for the country, and this should have been a massive red wave, and it was not, kind of as people like Ali, Alexander, and I told you it wouldn't be, uh, that it would be a Republican victories overall, that would be the trend, but that there were a lot of missed opportunities for a whole host of reasons. We, we, we discussed that in the run-up to this election. Now, Ann Coulter has, has a Substack piece out. And, you know, Ann Coulter obviously has a lot of enmity towards Trump. She comes off very bitter when she talks about Trump for a host of reasons. And I think that often her analysis is clouded by that bitterness and by that enmity that she feels towards Trump. And it's it's unfortunate. But the essence of what she is trying to convey, I think a lot of times is uh, is quite grounded and quite quite close to reality. Her article on Substack is titled, The Fact Herschel Walker Barely Lost His Senate Runoff in Georgia Demonstrates Beyond a Doubt That Any Other Candidate Would Have Won, Any Other Republican Candidate Would Have Won. The title of is, is the, the Old Trump Magic, Trump is Now Responsible for Losing Three Successive Senate Elections in the State of Georgia. That was the first uh, sentence there. She says, this kind of important, this is kind of important. Raphael Warnock's victory Tuesday night gives the Democrats a 51 seat majority in the Senate, 52 with the vice president. Moderate Democrats are irrelevant now. It's going to be pedal to the metal for the progressive left. We have to get to the bottom of who chose Herschel Walker. Oh, look, it was Donald Trump. In March 2021, Trump put out this statement. Quoting Trump here, wouldn't it be fantastic if the legendary Herschel Walker ran for the United States Senate in Georgia? He would be unstoppable, just like he was when he played for the Georgia Bulldogs and in the NFL. He is also a great person. Run, Herschel, run. It's not as if running for office had been Herschel Walker's lifelong dream. Trump picked him. Why? Because Walker had played for Trump's United States Football League and was a contestant on Celebrity Apprentice. So she's saying it's basically they, they know each other, he, they're friends. She puts in here in her article, great call. I hope he has some brilliant ideas for can't-miss Senate candidates. Omarosa, maybe, Carrot Top, Ghislaine Maxwell. So you see here, and Coulter's bitterness coming out. The former president is now responsible for losing three successive Senate seats in the state of Georgia. 
That's in addition to losing 40 House seats in the uh, 2018 midterms, losing the presidential election in 2020, and losing seat after seat in this year's midterms, a year that should have been a Republican sweep. Instead of crime, the border, and inflation, Trump demanded GOP candidates that fixate on his stolen election. But it's Georgia that got the full benefit of the Trump magic. Now, uh, important here, Trump is pointing to his 80% win rate or something with endorsements in the 2020 or the 2022 midterms. That is completely disingenuous. Let's just be very clear about that. Trump is taking credit for issuing an endorsement to Rand Paul, for instance, who was not in any way, shape, or form under threat, not in any way, shape, or form challenged at all. He is, uh, Trump is taking credit for the victory of Thomas Massey. Now, Thomas Massey is somebody who Trump targeted who Trump promised to remove from office because Thomas Massey said that it was a horrible idea to start sending out stimmy checks and that the real solution was to not lock down the economy in the first place. And Thomas Massey, one of the very few principled people, voted against the stimmy checks and said, if you want to stimmy, then just unlock the economy. And if the states won't do it, send in the National Guard, send in the military to open up the economy. Well, Trump wasn't happy about that. He was not happy to be opposed by anybody. Thomas Massey, kind of like Rand Paul, has a little bit, you know, his hair is a little bit on the wild side, his whole kind of look. He's a free thinker, truly. And of course, Trump supported Massey's. He kept his promise. He supported Massey's primary challenger in this election. Massey trounced the primary challenger, and then Trump reluctantly gave him a little tiny endorsement. Well, Trump takes credit for that. So obviously Trump's endorsement record is, is not as positive as he makes it out to be. Let's be clear about that. There, it became more prescient in, in issues like certain gubernatorial races. So for example, Maryland had a Republican governor, Larry Hogan, who now thinks he's going to run for president, which is just a joke. Now, was he a Republican in name only? Yes. But what was the utility of Larry Hogan? What was his utility? You know, he would essentially ensure that Maryland didn't go totally down the tubes and just release all of the violent crack dealers from jail in Baltimore. You know, he, he made sure they didn't go completely off the rails and just like blow out, you know, pro-crime at the state level. Or, or just like ship in illegals for fun. Um things like this. Well, Larry Hogan, you know, was was set to be replaced by either a moderate Republican. Um, and then the, the Democrats ran a black guy who was extreme far left. The moderate Republican, kind of in the vein of Larry Hogan, but I think better looking, if I recall, um, would have beat this extreme far left person. Maryland's a wonky state like that. Okay. It's a wonky state in that sense. I mean, it's a place that it's it's blue, but they can somehow come up with Republican governors. Massachusetts has been like that over the years. <clears throat> They've been like that, uh, but they have old Republican heritage going back. Another state that's been like that is, is New Jersey. Uh, New Jersey's been that way. And you have states that go the other direction, too, like Montana will put up a Democrat every now and again in different ways, either for governor, for, for Senate. It's, it's a weird, you know, you have these kind of exceptions across the country where you have these, these split ticket states. 
But to run against this uh, Republican comes this other guy who is basically, as I understand it, and not based on mainstream media reports, but based on my own research, a QAnon supporter. He is somebody who is absolutely obsessed with the 2020 election, with it being stolen from Trump. That is basically his single ticket issue. He isn't even really qualified to run for the office. He doesn't have the right look. He's clearly too far right for Maryland. And basically this primary uh, governor, you know, that that was going to be in this, this primary contender for Maryland governor, he has only two supporters, principally speaking. Far left Democrats like George Soros, who actually funded his campaign. Yes, Democrat dark money PACs backed by Soros and Pierre Omidyar and some of these other guys, Reid Hoffman, they backed this guy knowing that he'd lose the general, which is an extremely you know, cynical way to approach politics, but they did that. So he had the support of the far left who knew he'd lose and he had the support of Trump. And with the support of Trump, they were able to get out votes from places in the state and he won the primary, which doomed Maryland to have a far left governor now for you know the, the duration of this term which is going to have terrible impacts on 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 crime in this area because you know Maryland is is you can throw a rock across the river and hit Maryland okay it's right there i mean literally it's a stone's throw and so if you release thousands and thousands of violent criminals in Maryland they commit crime in Virginia as well they commit crime in DC as well uh, it's a disaster it's a total disaster. And it was engineered in part by Trump. Now, of course, you know, voters are accountable too. It's not as though voters have to do what Trump tells them to do. And in many cases, like the case of Thomas Massey, they did not do what Trump told them to do. So uh, in any event, yeah, Trump's uh, primary record, you know, his endorsement record for 2022 is not the positive record that he makes it out to be using kind of selective math and, and all of that. Let's be pretty clear about that. And and I'm happy to call balls and strikes here with this. Um, and I don't do it. And, and, and keep this in mind. I don't do this with any level of bitterness about Trump. I like Trump. I Nobody, probably nobody in this country, with the possible exception of Roger Stone, has paid the price to support Trump the way that I have. Okay? Bear that in mind. Criminal prosecutions in three states, stretching on years. Michigan, they want a million dollars bail after saying they only wanted 5000 to try to trap us there for life. Gag orders. Lawsuits in New York from both private plaintiffs and the New York Attorney General. Investigations out the wazoo, federal, state, you name it. Roger Stone, at least they had the dignity to just charge him in one place and, you know, own recognizance bail, walks out the same day, no issue. I mean, so, I mean, I'm not minimizing much what happened to him, but I'm just, I just mean to say I have no bitterness here. Absolutely none. I just want to be clear about, you know, what the record is and what the state of the country is and reflect that to you because it's not as though I'm sort of paid to shill for, for, for a side here. It's not as though I'm, you know, gunning for some position with the campaign or, or I'm gunning for some position in the Trump white house. It's, it's just not my game. So I don't feel sort of 
obliged to lie to you or, or spin this. So uh, Ann Coulter continues here. She points out after the 2020 election, two runoff elections in Georgia would decide the balance of power in the U.S. Senate. When we really needed all hands on deck, Trump went down to Georgia and was a wrecking ball. He insulted everyone, refused to talk about anything but himself, viciously attacked the state's Republican governor and secretary of state, blamed them for his loss, claimed the vote was rigged, and told his supporters not to vote. Both Republicans lost. And it wasn't the least of which because they just were not great candidates. Although I did like uh, David Perdue. Um, He was somebody I had a a close lobbying relationship with. And he was really a great guy. I I think he was really one of the better senators in the country. And I'd love to see him back into back into politics. Uh, yeah, he's a little establishment, but I mean, he—you need folks on, you know, the right committees to really drive our agenda forward. Uh, Ann Coulter continues: This isn't California. We're talking about Georgia. What's next? Will Trump lose a Republican seat in Alabama? Oh yeah, he did that too, miraculously turning the seat vacated by his attorney general, the great Jeff Sessions. Over to Democrat Doug Jones in 2017 when destroying Sessions' bid for his old seat in 2020 with acrid attacks. The state of Alabama is now represented by Trump's pick, Tommy Tuberville, the stupidest person in the Senate, bar none, except Senator Patty Murray, obviously, she says. Okay. Still enraged with his loss in Georgia a year after the 2020 election, Trump recruited a primary challenge to run against a sitting governor. Guess who Trump got to run? Former Senator David Perdue who happened to be available, having lost his runoff because of Trump. Driven by spite, Trump finally cracked open his $100 million political pact to fund something other than his own businesses, giving a half million dollars to Purdue to take out a GOP governor. Result? Kemp trounced Purdue 74% to 22%. So again, it wasn't even close. Trump's endorsement, the money didn't make any difference there. And yeah, people point to McConnell, you know, moving money around in this set or the other, but you have to look at the real influence here that, that, that truly exists. Okay, so she goes on. I, I can't really, I'm not going to repeat. A lot of this is just very venomous and I, I don't feel obliged to keep reading. But look, there is this problem. And, and all I mean to say right now is that things are, are very, very much up in the air. Up in the air. Um, somebody says here, I think the Proud Boys who are in jail for defending themselves in a fight might disagree just a bit. Yeah. You know, the problem is that the Proud Boys really did open themselves up to the gang violence laws that are very broad. And there, there are these gang violence laws and, you know, of course they shouldn't be in jail. These, these Proud Boys defending people from Antifa. I'm not saying that, but you just cannot go into a place like New York and kind of even affiliate yourself into anything that remotely even a tiny bit could be called in any context a gang and then be involved in any kind of violence of any sort. No, you can't. Because the problem is that the law by the letter is not what matters. It's not. Whether or not somebody has a probable cause standard to charge you is what matters because you're not going to get a fair jury. You're not going to get a fair jury. And, and I, frankly, I can't even believe Gavin McInnes still lives in the state of New York. I, I truly can't believe it. I truly can't believe it because the, just the, the level of danger at any level, when you consider the fact that, okay, in that state, you will never get a fair jury. Thus, 
all anybody ever has to do is charge you with something. Because once they've charged you, that's that. You have to plead guilty. You won't get a fair jury. But but you don't understand. You see our cases, uh, this, this, and this, and it's all on video, and it's all... It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. So you see, it's very... It's, it's Gosh, is it dangerous. I mean, it's it's crazy. It's really crazy. You know? So... Look, tons of people have paid a big cost. I mean, uh, there's no question about it. Maybe maybe no one bigger than the J6ers. You might be right. I mean, in terms of just the, the, those cases that exist where somebody was simply charged with trespassing, something that they, they, they'd be written a ticket for normally. Like if they trespassed onto a you know national park after it were closed or something, be given a ticket and then they're locked in jail forever. I mean, it's just sick. This country's so far gone in that regard. There's so there's just no justice system, and um, you know, it's um, it's wild. It's just wild. It's um, I I I don't know. I don't know really. You know, what to say anymore. What what can you say? What can you say? What can you say? I I don't know what you say anymore. I want to talk a little bit about this chat GPT technology. Now, I am not a computer scientist. I'm not a programmer. I'm not. Okay, so just take everything I say here, technically speaking, with a grain of salt. What I will tell you is that it has been my long-running perspective over the past number of years that technology has started to either stagnate or decline in many cases. And I think a lot of this had to do with the Federal Reserve. I think it had to do with zero interest rate policies, with being in a crazy bubble, bull market, where really what began to matter is hype and not whether or not your your, your product really works. And so we entered into this place where you know, Apple could get lazy and they could just keep putting out iPhones with a notch because eh, you're going to buy it anyway. You're going to buy it anyway. Or, um, you know, one investment that looks really positive, it's a great business, gets looked over and the venture capital world would rather invest in something that has 50% growth per month even if it's growth that never stands a chance of being profitable, and even if it's growth of something that's just insidious, dangerous, degenerate, uh, or, or otherwise useless, that wasn't what was important. What was important is chasing the returns of the guy next door. That's what people started to do, and thus the quality of products that were being put out went down. I think there's really no better example of this than Siri on the iPhone. Uh, Apple acquired Siri, which was a different company all the way back in 2011 or 2012. They integrated it into the iPhone. And honestly, I, I don't know that it's, I think it's probably gotten worse and worse over the years. I know I never use it to do anything. I know some people do. I never use it unless I accidentally activate it somehow. And it does just doesn't work very well. Um, I would even say that the voice assistant on my Samsung Omnia N900 in the year 2008 with Windows Mobile 
I don't even think it was 6.1. I think it was five something at the time when it first came out. The voice assistant on that phone worked better. I could tell it to go into change settings and it would do it every time. I could tell it to open up apps and look up something. It would do it every time, given the internet was slower, given a lot of things, but it worked better. Siri itself worked better long ago. The, the voice typing on the phones, I think that the voice typing on the phones reached its peak functionality with Google voice typing on Android uh, circa late 2016, early 2017. I think it was at its peak then, and both in the case of Google voice typing and Apple voice typing, it has only gone down since then. Now, there's a number of reasons that could be. It could be because there's more people using it that are speaking in different sorts of accents, and then it's importing that data and it's 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 muddying the water of, of data. Again, I'm not a computer scientist. I'm just saying what has appeared to be the case. I mean, people were supporting things like FTX while doing no due diligence. They were then exporting their due diligence out to McKinsey, to Bain and Company, uh, to Deloitte and Deloitte would just send them a report and say, looks good to us. And they'd invest in FTX. It's just emblematic of what was happening in the economy. And one of the things that I said on the last show is that, I think it was the last episode, I said one good thing about normalizing markets, some kind of risk-free rate coming back. I mean, there's there's a number of good things to it. I mean, you'll, you'll be able to make some money on your savings. There's a number of good factors. But one of them is that I think it will really drive products. Because at the end of the day, it's like, you know, if you have some allocation to venture capital that means something to you, maybe you don't care. You know, maybe you don't care whether the products are any good and you just care about your IRR and, you know, but you should care about the products because at the end of the day, that's what the, the public's going to use. That's what's going to move society forward. And ultimately, it's going to drive returns too. I mean, how many of these VC funds had on paper returns that were astronomical, but just because of timing and where the market's at now? They're never going to actually return that kind of money to their to their LPs, to their investors. Never going to happen because now the things have been marked down. This company failed. That company failed. A lot of houses of cards are, are, are not just falling down, but they're being vaporized. And so one of the innovations that, that has, has come to the fore is this open AI. And another disclaimer here, a necessary disclaimer, I am also not in any way, shape or form uh, an historian when it comes to open AI, AI in general, I'm not. I care about end user, you know, what, what's end user available to us. That's what I know about. And what I can tell you over the years, there's been a lot of people that have, that have called things AI because it's a buzzword, because you could raise a lot of money calling something AI. You know, for example, you would have, um, you'd have, uh, Redfin, for instance, Redfin is a competitor to Zillow, uh, better in a lot of ways. And they would say, we'll buy a house from you without ever sending anyone to look at the house, without ever sending anyone to do an appraisal. We'll just buy it because our algorithm uses artificial intelligence to value the house. Carvana did this with cars. This is just one example, you know, valuing things using AI, but it wasn't AI. It was a simple multivariate hedonic regression algorithm that you can run in Microsoft Excel. Uh, 
I, I don't have time to go into hedonic regression, but but basically it's a way of projecting the future based on past data and compiling the past data in various ways to determine what might probably happen in the future, but also might not. And there's all kinds of issues with that. But it was hedonic regression. It was a, a process that's fundamentally existed uh, even in practical forms for 60 years. You know, practically speaking, has, has been used by computers for 60 years, especially in military applications, but also in financial markets. They'd call it AI and they get money, but it's not intelligent in any way. Uh, what this chat GPT from OpenAI, let's get to the essence of what this really looks to be. It's 100, and, it's 100 gigabytes approximately of, you know, the package, the software package is about 100 gigabytes uh, as of what I understand. Now, 100 gigabytes is a lot, a lot of data if you're just talking about raw text. Obviously, you start storing images and videos and other things. It, it's, it, it, it can take up 100 gigabytes pretty quickly. But if you're just talking about pure raw text, 100 gigabytes is a ton of raw text. Let me just give you some sense here. How many characters of raw text, because I just want to put this in real terms, in 100 gigabytes. Here we go. Assuming a binary gigabyte, six bytes per word, you could use about 179 million words. Using Unicode, half of this, that is 89.5 million words. Uh, just for context, the entire Christian Bible, Old and New Testaments, fits in about two megabytes. Okay? So just to give you an idea, binary gigabyte, Six bytes per word, 179. The average word is five letters, so that's 179 million words if you use raw text. Okay, so I'm not saying this is all raw text or anything like that, but I'm just saying that 100 gigabytes is a large, large program. Make no mistake. Okay, now what appears to be the case is that what they've done at OpenAI, and, and again, I'm not a computer scientist, I could totally be wrong here, but maybe my perspective as a non-kind of computer scientist might even help me see the forest through the trees here. It might not, but for whatever it's worth, I'll, I'll continue. That's a lot of text. So what appears to be the case is that perhaps they have scraped a lot of data off of the internet from Q&A blogs, FAQ pages, uh, from, uh, you know, openly available chat logs between people for any purpose. They have, you know, kind of been able to capture the essence of those items, take out what's important, build some logic around how to sort through that quickly, which is really something to be said for that because, you know, sorting through hundred gigabytes quickly to find even say a file of a particular name can take a couple of seconds, you know, depending on, what kind of hard drive you're talking about, what kind of structure you're talking about. Is it, is it a solid state drive? Is it a spinning drive? All of this. But the point is it can take a, a while. And they have built something that is, um, is it intelligent? I don't know. You know, somebody sat there and they took, it, they took a, um, an SAT exam 
using this and like they really babied it in terms of making sure they were inputting everything correctly. And it got 52nd percentile on the SAT. Okay. It got um, about half the questions right, even on the math section. And again, they babied it in terms of inputting the math problems. So is it intelligent? Well, if we measure intelligence using the SAT, which plenty of people do, then the answer is yes, it's intelligent, about as intelligent as half the people taking the SAT. Maybe cut out the bottom 20% of those saying that they were just having a bad day, didn't really try, just bubbled things in. Okay, now maybe adjust for those outliers, say 60% of the people taking the SAT. It's that intelligent. And what I really care about here, though, is, is not so much the semantics of have they captured generalized human-like intelligence or not. That isn't so much the, the, the useful question, really. What I think is the useful question here is that they, they have put out something which is, which is practically usable. It's a product. And, and it, can, it can take your requests and output something that's useful to you. And at the end of the day, I mean, as, as users of technology, that's really what we care about, isn't it? I mean, that that's the whole essence of a computer. Put something in, get something out. Is what you got out useful? Does it help you uh, through your day? Does it give you the answer to a question? Does it does it give you useful information? Does it entertain you? As, as average normal people, I think that's what we mostly care about. Does it get work done? Does it generate value? That's what we care about. And this seems to be able to do that. Now, there are a lot of people doing a lot of silly things with this uh, open AI chat, but I've done a couple of things with it that were kind of remarkable to me. So I said, you know, let's see if we can trip this thing up. I went on and what I did is I, I inputted a, a request and in fact, I will, you know, for those of you watching live on YouTube, I'll just see if I can pull it up here, the screenshot of it so that you can, you can read along. Um, let's see here if it's going to, oh yeah, here it is. Okay. So here it is. This is it. Yep. So this is the request here. So I asked it, I asked the open AI bot to, um, to basically, uh, I, I want to be particular about the about the request here. I asked it to write a blog post about the danger of exporting cluster munitions. And I thought, you know, okay, it's very possible that the word cluster will mix it up, that it might, you know, not know precisely how to do this. And I kid you not, four seconds later, it outputs this, you know, short essay about this. And for those of you just listening, I'll read you a bit here. It says, exporting cluster munitions is a dangerous practice that poses a serious threat to civilians and the environment. These weapons are designed to disperse smaller, uh, multiple smaller munitions or bomblets over a wide area, making it difficult to control where they land. As a result, cluster munitions often fail to detonate on impact and can remain, lethal, uh, can remain a lethal threat long after a conflict has ended. 
Cluster munitions are particularly dangerous because they are often used in populated areas, causing significant civilian casualties. In fact, a report by the Cluster Munition Foundation found that 98% of all recorded cluster munition casualties were civilians. This is because the bomblets are often small and difficult to see, making them easy to step on or pick up, especially by children. Furthermore, the use of cluster munitions can have long-term environmental consequences. The unexploded bomblets can contaminate soil and water sources, making it difficult to grow crops and use land for other purposes. This can lead to food shortages and economic instability in affected areas. I might as well just read you the whole thing. Exporting cluster munitions is also morally reprehensible. So it's making a judgment about that here. It's, it's, the computer is making a moral judgment. And it is saying that exporting cluster munitions is morally reprehensible. So, so that is something you can disagree over. In fact, just today in the news, an article out that Biden's considering exporting cluster munitions to Ukraine. Uh, it says here the use of these weapons is banned by the 2008 Convention on Cluster Munitions, which has been signed by over 100 countries. This treaty prohibits the use, production, stockpiling, and transfer of cluster munitions. However, a number of countries, including the United States and Russia, have not signed the treaty and continue to export these weapons. In conclusion, exporting cluster munitions is a dangerous and inhumane practice that poses a serious threat to civilians and the environment. It is important for all countries to adhere to the ban of these weapons and work towards a safer, more peaceful world. So there you go. A lot of moralizing here. Managed to pull data in. Uh, references, essentially. And it made several, you know, moral judgments that probably seem to be kind of, uh, I don't know, derived from the same subject matter that it was pulling the statistics from. And then structured them into what had very nice sentence structure. Uh, this essay, by the way, I tested it. Uh, it came out as 100% unique, 0% plagiarized in one of those plagiarism checkers. I ran it through a Fleisch Kincaid grade level score. It was 12.8. Uh, the Fleisch uh, Reading E score was 35.9. Reading level college. Average words per sentence, 18.4. Average syllables per word, 1.8. 15 sentences, 276 words. I mean, folks, this thing in four seconds put out a better written article on cluster munitions than most writers did today based on the reports that Biden was considering exporting cluster munitions. It's far from perfect. The pacing could be a lot better, obviously. It, it is a bit robotic. It's obviously a bit robotic. Um, I mean, it's, it's, not, it's not persuasive, for example, right? Because everyone knows when you write a persuasive essay or, or anything aiming to persuade, one of the things you do is you, you present the counter argument. You know, usually you, you have your opening argument, then you have, or maybe a couple of those, you'll have a counter argument, you know, proponents of cluster munitions exports say that they do X, Y, and Z. They say that in the war on terror, they've taken up, 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 up. Proponents of exporting cluster munitions also say this. Then the next paragraph, you'll take those apart in a very, you know, expert fashion. And then you might do a few more paragraphs of your own. And depending on the length of what you're doing, you may have another paragraph with counter arguments. This didn't do that. It didn't adhere to basic structure for persuasive essays, but I also didn't uh, ask it to do that. I just asked it to present one side of the argument. So the point is, look, far from perfect, but you also have to understand that a large percentage of our economy is busy work. 
is, you know, writing of essays and writing of blog posts and writing of white papers and writing of materials online that nobody ever reads. I mean, how many years will it be before this kind of technology can write a legal pleading in an expert fashion or, or write a legal pleading as well as the best lawyer in the country? There's a whole lot of lawyers in this country that really will never or very seldom will they ever, you know, set foot in a courtroom. What they do is they write motions and writing motions is, is, is no small task. I mean, referencing the entire cacophony of case law. There's, I guarantee, a startup right now working on applying this technology to writing legal pleadings so that a law firm can reduce its staff by 98% and still provide the same quality. It's not going to happen overnight. I mean, how long until you have this, this system and you can present it with, you know, the structure of a, a particular kind of cancer cell and you can say, come up with a list of four chemical compounds that defeat the survival of this cancer cell and give me instructions for how to synthesize those chemicals. And four seconds later, it outputs them. Not overnight, but there's already programs that do something somewhat similar to that. It's a realm called um, computational chemistry so that you can you know, save some time and essentially, you know, say you're looking for a, a drug to solve a particular kind of ailment, you know, rather than testing out, you know, 400 different drugs that you have a hunch might work, it will kind of screen out and give you a short list to work with based on its simulation of say protein structure degeneration or different, you know, chemical processes. And it can simulate those within a computer. I'm just saying, you know, it, whether it's intelligent or not, I mean, everybody goes straight to like the, the, the movie thing. We're like, oh, these things are going to take over our lives. And they're going to be, you know, everybody wants to go to the movie plot because that's what the, the we've been primed to think about. But like that movie, Her, where I, I just couldn't even make it all the way through that movie, to be honest with you. It just really wasn't my thing. But you think about the number of people that engage in you know, kind of long distance intimate relationships or virtual intimate relationships right now with girls on OnlyFans, how long until this technology can have an OnlyFans account generate completely? They already have AI porn, by the way, that can generate an image of a naked woman that's totally original. She doesn't actually exist or generate all kinds of pornographic images on its own. And you know, mostly they look kind of warped and off like, you know, okay, this has got a ways to go before they look real, but it exists. Now, imagine you had an OnlyFans page, an Instagram page, a TikTok page. None of the people pictured even exist. And then you can talk to them, not just via text, but via voice or via FaceTime. Again, that is not right on the horizon. That would be a lot harder to do from just the, 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 the level of computational resources that that will take up. I will say that the, the removal of cryptocurrency from the world will help with that. It'll free up a lot of computational resources and bandwidth and other things as cryptocurrency dies off or at least has receded the way that it has. And of course, 
you know, this kind of technology heretofore has been used in financial markets. People like Citadel already have had technology like this for about five years and have used it to better predict, you know, small movements within market microstructure, where volume is going to go on a particular day. They feed it different sorts of data sets than might be associated with with what we're witnessing here. But in, in so many ways, yeah, the pharmaceutical industry has been using AI simulators for tens of years. Yes, yes. But I mean, they they can be a lot better. You see, they simulate millions of structures for every drug. Right, right. Yeah, that's called, you know, pharmaceutical uh, computational chemistry. There's there's other things. But but as this becomes more ubiquitous and the the barriers to entry for messing with this are lowered. You know, the, the important part about that, like there's a program called, um, uh, the program is called, I'll tell you here. Oh my God. What is it called here? It's, it's four letters. Um, there's a program out there that that's popular. Um, and, uh, I've got it right here. I was talking about it with a friend recently. It's called, uh, one moment here. I just want to tell you what this particular program is. Um, here you go. It's uh, basically it's 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 a product that's out there that that's kind of the go-to for pharmaceutical um, uh, computational chemistry, and um, it is uh, kind of the go-to program called NAMD. NAMD. Now, the basic, the, the very basic uh, instruction manual for NAMD is like 100 plus pages long. Uh, and NAMD is a program which runs in the command line only. It is very, very hard to use. Uh, basically can only be used by computer scientists. So what does this mean? Well, it means when the chemists at the pharmaceutical company have an idea, they have to then call in usually the computer guy, and maybe they have a chemist that also happens to be good with computers and he can sort of run it. But then the computer guys have to be called in. They run it in the command line, uses up a lot of computational resources. And it becomes this whole bureaucracy where, you know, sure, it still saves some time in the aggregate, but it doesn't save any time acutely. Well, like Martin Screlli is working on a, on a product, which is a web-based version of NAMD, which is sort of from a from a user friendliness standpoint, akin to this Chat GPT, and will uh, enable anybody with a hunch to to scan through these uh, things. It's called Drug Like is the name of the program. We'll see what it does. But the point is, I you get into a world where because more people can use it, and it's not restricted purely to computer scientists who have their own fascinations and their own you know kind of boundaries around their own creativity and their expertise. This is going to become something where. I, I think that the world could be reasonably unrecognizable in five years. We're going to have to make ethical decisions about, okay, what do we do here? Like, is it a question of make every person in the economy who does busy work 70 times more productive than they are now? White collar busy work, that is. And... Okay, we make them 70, but is there a market for 70 times more productivity from them? Do we even need that? Or do we fire them? And then what do they do? 
there's going to be wealth effects that come of this. But as we know, with wealth effects, most of that new wealth will be consolidated up to the square root of the number of people in the top 1%. Like 50% of it will be in the square root number of people of the top 1%. Because that's just how the world seems to work. I mean, the, the square root of the number of stars in the universe have 50% of the mass, for, for instance. I mean, uh, it, it's just kind of the way that distributions work, you know, without outside intervention. Artists are basically gone. English majors are next. I mean, that's what somebody says here in the chat. That's from Johnny. You can imagine that, you know, maybe you could tell this thing in 20 years. I would like to watch a movie similar. You could tell this thing. I like the movies, this, 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 and this. I like these 10 movies. I would like to see a movie that is, you know, makes me feel the way that those 10 movies made me feel. And instead of simply suggesting another movie like those, that exists all over the internet, those kind of tools, it makes you a new movie in 10 seconds. And the animation is indistinguishable from real life. And the voices are indistinguishable from real life voices and you have a new movie. I mean, it's, it is remarkable. It, 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 this is going to be a game changer. Certain things will happen faster. There will be boom and bust cycles in this alone. There will be calamities that come from this, un, you know, undoubtedly. Like what there will be here, you're going to read a story about somebody who, 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 who goes and, and gets into Harvard and their entire, the entirety of their application, uh, you know, the quiz, the SAT, all of it was done by an AI tool. And then what are you doing, really? It's remarkable. But, but what I would suggest is I have an audience that leans younger. And what I would suggest is, is, is to make sure you get into a field, and some of this is hard to predict, where you're not going to be easily replaced by this. Maybe you'll be replaced, but not easily. Like I'm in lobbying right now, and, and I don't see exactly how you replace lobbying with this anytime soon. In fact, I think this will create more business for lobbyists. And what I think it will do is remove a lot of the boring, tedious parts of my job. Um, but I mean, I could be wrong. I'm just saying you have to think a lot about this. Um, imagine somebody gets their online MBA with this. Yeah, sure. I mean, this thing can write code for you already. There's examples online. You can see somebody needed to like sort through Excel. They weren't exactly an expert. Said write a script that basically makes this whole spreadsheet done. Wrote the script. He plugged it in. It did all of his work that would have taken him like 18 hours in four minutes. Imagine you could just kind of instruct your video editing program. Just, you know, just do that. And you didn't have to know, oh, that means you have to press control Z plus left click that plus do. You just, you just did it. You just follow the instruction and did it the way that a human who was an expert video editor would do. Man, the, the, the efficiencies are tremendous. I think truly they, they, they are beyond imagination. Truly beyond imagination. Um, so it, yeah, it's, it, it, somebody says here, uh, MJ says beyond remarkable, exhilarating and horrifying simultaneously. Uh, talk about those fields. Yeah. Talk about the fields that, that won't be easily replaced. Well, 
I mean, there, there are certain fields that just require a personal touch. And sometimes you don't think that's true, but, but, but they do. Um, you know, like, and, and some of these things would take a lot longer to do. So either because of they're, they're just technically difficult or because they will require a great deal of bureaucratic wrangling, like for instance, surgery, you know, everybody's seen there's robotic surgeries now that are done remotely, but what if the AI surgeon could do it better than the, than the human surgeon and the AI surgical nurse can do it better than the human surgical nurse? Then you lie down and the AI powered robot does your surgery. Okay, great. Yeah, that can, that's probably 20 years off, technically speaking. It's probably 30 years off, ethically speaking, meaning the public's ethical thoughts on it will take a long time to evolve. And it's probably 60 years off from a government bureaucracy regulation standpoint, because that stuff moves incredibly slowly, not the least of which because the surgeon lobby of America will be hiring people like me, registered lobbyists, to make sure that even when everything else is is lined up, the government will be slowed in, in making that legal to introduce. So something like that, you know, think about where there's barriers to entry for a computer to take your job. I mean, I, I wouldn't want to be a truck driver. The truck driver thing's probably still 12 years off before you can replace all truck drivers with, with self-driving because there's a certain level of uncomfort and, and people being uncomfortable is not just invalid. It's, it's not trivial. And people just saying no out of their discomfort with a product is not trivial. So it's, it's just remarkable. Um, Scientific American here, this is a chat from Peter Edwards, AI program GPT-3 says some experts believe the act of eating a sock helps the brain to come out of an altered state as a result of meditation. Yeah, look, I mean, there's, there's, there's bizarre things. There's creepy things uh, that, that, that exist here. All of this is um, remarkable. But what I'm glad to see is nobody's been, been a bigger skeptic of AI than me. And what I have said is that artificial intelligence, meaning it's actually intelligent, does not exist. And I've been saying that for the last several years because I've watched as one of these scams after another that are running hedonic regression or not running anything at all have claimed that they have AI. I said they don't. Just do a basic test for us. Just show us something that looks intelligent and they haven't been able to do it. Uh, and I still don't necessarily think we have anything resembling intelligent in terms of true intelligence. But what I do think that we have for the first time is something that is at least useful. There's useful inputs and useful outputs. A non-programmer can have a simple code written that does something for them that that makes their life better. And it's online and it's it's free. And uh, I would pay 15 bucks a month for this product. I probably wouldn't pay much more than that. So if they want to start charging people, that might be good. But part of this is that the inputs coming from people are probably being added to the hive mind of, of what's happening here. So... Um, 
It's remarkable. The trucks, yeah, maybe the trucks are more like 25. I don't know. I'm thinking 12 for self-driving trucks on the road, but you could be right. I don't know. I mean, there's some real challenges there. And um, these things from a sensor standpoint, it, it does appear that the sensors need to get a little bit better. There's there's hardware. There, there, are, there are real hardware uh, bottlenecks to be solved for self-driving big rigs to take over completely and all of that. So look, folks, I, I'll cut it off there. It's been great to have you this Thursday. Uh, have a great weekend. Of course, you can support the show financially on Cash App at Real Jacob Bull, as a lot of you do every episode, and I appreciate it greatly. Or on uh, at jacobull.org slash podcast. You can do recurring or even a one-time donation through there, I believe. And it's through the Gumroad platform, very secure, works well. They don't censor us. Who knows, maybe when I see you on Monday, I'll be back on Twitter and we'll have a lot more listeners from there, which could be good or bad, I suppose. Probably good. So uh, everyone, I greatly appreciate it. I appreciate your support. I appreciate you uh, tuning in. I thank you for tuning in. I hope that I've been of value and, and usefulness to you today. And I'll see you on Monday, 2 p.m. live on YouTube, podcast apps everywhere shortly thereafter. Thanks for joining me. Have a great weekend. See you Monday.